it's time for us to wish our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today, a very happy birthday on this Wednesday, November 1st of 2023. We have one listener we're aware of, Rodney Heathershaw from Norwalk. Rodney, all of us here at Iris would like to wish you a very happy birthday. And a reminder, you're listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now it's time for today's obituaries and we'll let Barb start with that. Thank you, Dennis. Gretchen Floresville Van Steek, 90 of Urbandale, died peacefully at home on October 26th. She was born in rural O'Brien County on February 8, 1933, to Bert and Ruth Haken Camp. She grew up in Decatur County and graduated from Leon High School in 1951. Gretchen married Gerald, known as Slim, first date, on December 28, 1963. She, Gerald, and her three children, Farrell, Janet and Tommy Vaughn made their home in Searsboro, Iowa, and later moved to Linville, Iowa. Gretchen and Gerald had one daughter, Amy. Following Gerald's death in 1992, she moved to the Des Moines area. Gretchen was a member of Mount Olive Lutheran Church and was active in the Lutheran Women's Missionary League. She enjoyed all kinds of needlework, decorating cakes, reading, and watching movies and sports. She shared her skills through handmade gifts, birthday cakes, knitted baby hats, and many donated quilts. She was a lifelong Democrat, vote blue, and voted, volunteered for many years as a poll worker. She also volunteered and worked at Living History Farms. Gretchen is survived by her daughters, Janet Vaughn and Amy Verstig, four grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, brother Samuel Camp, many great many grandkitties, and numerous other family members and friends. She was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Gerald, sons Farrell and Tommy Vaughn, grandson Ryan Broxma, her parents, brothers William, Robert, and Michael Camp, and sister Agnes Arnold. A memorial service will be held Monday, November 6th at 10.30 a.m. at Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Des Moines. In remembrance of Gretchen's life, the family asks that any memorial donations be made to Mount Olive Lutheran Church. Thomas, known as Tom Cole of Waukee, 93, passed away on September 18th. A celebration of life will be held on Saturday, November 4th at 1.30 p.m. at St. Stephen's Lutheran Church in Urbandale. Following the service, a gathering will be held at the Urbandale Golf and Country Club. Gerald, known as Jerry Robert Foote, 83, passed away Friday, October 27th. A visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. Monday, November 6th, at McLaren's Prest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines. Barry will be at 2 p.m. Tuesday at Highland Memory Gardens in Des Moines. Jerry was born August 27, 1940, in Cedar Rapids, to Gerald Leroy and June Nora Sesker Foote. Twink, as he was known to family and close friends, was a paper boy for three years at the Des Moines Register, a Boy Scout BSA, and a 60-year resident on 39th Street in Des Moines. He graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1958 and enjoyed playing trombone in the marching band. Jerry graduated from ISU in 1963 with a degree in architectural engineering and was a proud member of Delta Chi fraternity. 
He went on to study structural engineering at the University of Iowa and was a lifelong registered industrial and structural engineer, ASCE. Jerry was employed by several U.S. engineering firms and was a resident civil engineer at Mara Kang Steam Power Plant in Jakarta, Indonesia. Jerry was also a member of the Iowa National Guard for six years, a voracious reader, world traveler, and poker player. Twink, you will be greatly missed. Jerry is survived by his sister Shirley Henders of New Mexico and Colleen Kaiser of New York, who is preceded in death by his parents. Jean-Marie Cataldo, 92, passed away on October 21st at Ramsey Village in Des Moines. Jean was born August 14, 1931, in Wayne County, to Henry and Ida Ellis Johnston. She became a devout Catholic before marrying the love of her life, Carl Navio Cataldo, on June 10, 1958, in Monterey, Mexico. Growing up on a farm taught her the true meaning of hard work by completing chores of milking the cows, collecting eggs, and pitching hay. She loved dogs, especially poodles. She always had dogs in her home and took them with her wherever she went. She enjoyed cooking, crocheting, canning, and going to garage sales. She taught herself how to speak Italian and play the piano. She loved telling stories, the color orange, making Italian food, cardinals, and Elvis Presley. Above all, she loved the time spent with her grandchildren. Jean is survived by her children, Carla Kelly, Vicki Stout, Carl Cataldo, Jan Gennaro Cataldo, and Karma Spitzer, seven grandchildren, and eight great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, her devoted husband, Carl Navio Cataldo, on September 25, 1996, and siblings, Leslie, Dean, and Larry. Condolences may be expressed at hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Joanna S. S. Fries Schmidt passed on this life to her eternal home with her Lord and Savior on Monday, October 30, 2023, at Edencrest at Green Meadows in Johnston. Joanna was preceded in death by her beloved husband, Kevin, her parents, and her brother, Harm Fries. She is survived by her brother Herman Fries and his wife Marge, her sister Julie Kreimeyer and her husband Vernon, her sister-in-law Alita Fries, many nieces, nephews, great-nieces and great-nephews, and friends who will miss her terribly. Memorial arrangements are being made by Isles Dunn Chapel. Visitation will be Friday, November 3rd, from 1 to 2.30 p.m. at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Urbandale, with a memorial service starting at 2.30 p.m. Private burial will be held at Washington Reformed Church Cemetery in rural Ackley. That ends today's obituary. Turning back now to some Iowa news. This is the Iowa Poll. Economy, immigration, extremely important to GOP caucus goers. The economy and immigration are extremely important to the vast majority of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers as they consider presidential candidates topping a list of 11 issues tested in a new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll. Half or more of likely caucus scores also say government spending and the deficit and some foreign policy concern, such as the Israel-Hamas war and relations with China, are also extremely important. These new poll findings reflect what Republican candidates often cite on the campaign trail or hear from Iowans as they travel the state ahead of the January 15th caucuses. Conversely, only about a third or less of likely GOP caucus scores named the Russia-Ukraine war at 33%, transgender issues at 32%, 
or ethanol and renewable energy at 27% as extremely important issues. And only about 1 in 10 likely GOP caucus scores named climate change at 10% and vaccinating against COVID-19 at 9% as extremely important issues. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus scores was conducted on October 22nd through the 26th by Seltzer and Company and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. Now, there are concerns about government spending, and inflation are high priorities. Nearly all likely Republican caucus scores surveyed feel the economy and inflation is an extremely important, or at 81 percent, or, or important at 18 percent issue as they consider which candidate to support this January, the Iowa poll found. Only 1 percent say it's not that important. Government spending and the deficit is also an extremely important issue to 72% of likely Republican caucus scores. Another 25% say the issue is important, while just 3% say it's not important. For poll respondent Jack Schulte, a 63-year-old Elkhart resident, concerns about inflation and government spending go hand in hand. The rising cost of living is a major concern to Schulte, and he said he believes President Joe Biden's administration is recklessly spending on priorities that don't address those concerns for taxpayers. He pointed to the $20 billion approved, $20 million billion approved excuse me, by the Biden administration earlier this year to fund clean energy projects. We've got to stop the spending, said Schulte, an industrial technology teacher at Northwest High School in Waukee. I don't know why there's a blank check that they just keep spending. Schulter said he plans to support former President Donald Trump in the caucuses. Security at the southern border is another top concern. 80% of likely Iowa Republican caucus goers say immigration and border security is an extremely important issue, and an additional 17% say it's important. Only 4% say the issue is not important. Poll respondent Chris Wellendorf, a 33-year-old food service director at the Forest City Community School District, said he wants to see stricter policies at the southern border to decelerate illegal immigration and a stronger vetting process for those looking to cross the border legally. The Forest City resident plans to support Trump in the January 15 caucuses, saying he agrees with the former president's stance on immigration. Without having the proper channels of legal immigration in place, it's hard to know who's arriving, and I don't believe that's a very secure circumstance, Wellendorf said. I think it's in the best interest of the American people to understand who's coming and why they're coming and how they could better be incorporated into society, he said. Poll respondent Nathan Neuendorf, a 33-year-old from Inwood, agrees the country should have strong scrutiny for immigrants crossing the border, but... He opposes any policies that make it hard for migrants to come into the country legally. Neuendorf operates a farm near Inwood and said he and other farmers often struggle to fill critical agricultural jobs. By streamlining the legal process for migrants to come into the country, he said he believes they can help alleviate the workforce shortage that his industry and other rural businesses often face. It's not something that everyone wants, and I understand that, but these are jobs that need to be done to continue to provide quality, safe, affordable food for the people of America, says Neuendorf, who recently hired two migrant workers on his farm. Half or more of the caucus goers say Israel-Hamas war and relations with China are extremely important. 
On foreign policy issues, 57% of likely Republican caucus scores rank the Israel-Hamas war as extremely important. Another 3% say the Israel-Hamas war is important, while 6% say it's not important. Concerning relations with China, well, 50% say the issue is extremely important. 40% say relations with China are important, and 10% say they're not important. However, just 33% of caucus goers say the Russia-Ukraine war is extremely important. Another 48% say it's important, and 19% say it's not that important. Catherine Felt, a 57-year-old Republican poll respondent from Rowland, said the Israel-Hamas war is extremely important. She said she's not a Biden supporter, but praised his response to Hamas October 7th attack on Israel. When he does something right, or when he does well, I do acknowledge that, she said. Post-incursion, Biden and his administration are being supportive of Israel. They're saying a lot of the right things. They're responding militarily to attacks on our soldiers. But she has more confidence in Trump to handle the conflict, saying he has a strong leader, or he was a strong leader, who made clear to the world leaders when he was president that he would and wouldn't tolerate. I think just being the person who he is would help calm things down a little bit, she said. And he did show that he was a friend to Israel by moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Felt, a homemaker, called the Russia-Ukraine war important, but said she has some reservations about the amount of money the United States is spending to aid Ukraine. Now, does that mean I think we should abandon them? No, she said. I feel like we need to do a better job of looking where that money is going and make sure it's being used properly. On relations with China, she called extremely important. Felt said the U.S. needs to be more aggressive in confronting China for stealing intellectual property and buying up U.S. land. We've been sort of letting them run rapid, and we need to stop them, she said. Post-Roe, less than half of likely Iowa Republican caucus scores see abortion as extremely important. 41% of likely Republican caucus scores say abortion restrictions are extremely important, the Iowa poll shows, which comes more than a year after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which had legalized abortion nationwide in 1973. Another 38% say the issue is important to them. Meanwhile, 20% say the issue is not that important as they evaluate the Republican primary field and 1% aren't sure. Poll respondent Kathy Captain a likely Republican caucus goer who is still deciding which presidential hopeful to support in January, said a candidate's stance on abortion is the most critical issue to her when making that decision. The 73-year-old Sioux Center resident said she would like to see a federal ban on abortion. She, she supports a near-total ban with limited exceptions, such as in the cases of rape or if the mother's life is in danger. It's a living being at consumption, Captain said. It's a living baby. Transgender issues such as athletic participation or gender-affirming care for the minors are extremely important to 32% of likely caucus scores and important to another 31% of likely caucus scores. 35% say the issue is not that important and two aren't sure. And finally, ethanol, climate change, far down the list of extremely important issues. A little over a quarter... 27% of likely Republican caucus scores say ethanol and renewable energy is extremely important, while 42% say the issue is important. 30% say the issue is not that important. Asked about climate change, well, 10% view that issue as extremely important, and another 23% believe it is important. 
but about two-thirds, 66%, said that the issue is not that important. Poll respondent Jack Reif, a farmer from Wilton who served as a member of the Iowa Senate for nearly 20 years, said he believes the U.S. should put more emphasis on domestic energy production, such as ethanol, to reduce the country's reliance on foreign energy. While he's not opposed to solar or wind energy, the 80-year-old said the country's current infrastructure can't support broad use of those energy sources. Therefore, he said the nation's energy strategy also needs to include increased domestic production of coal and oil. I don't want to rely on anyone for my energy that heats my home, Reif said. And few say vaccinating against COVID is extremely important issues. As a new, as a new vaccine against COVID-19 arrives in pharmacies and clinics across the country, the issue's importance is low among likely Republican caucus goers. The poll shows 9% view it as extremely important and 15% say it is important. The majority, 76%, say vaccinating against COVID-19 is not that important as they evaluate presidential hopefuls, while 1% aren't sure. Intel officials say terrorists could target Americans. Americans could be targeted in the U.S. by terrorist groups in the Middle East, inspired by the war between Israel and Hamas, intelligence officials warned a Senate panel Tuesday. The reality is that the terrorism threat has been evaluated throughout 2023. But the ongoing war in the Middle East has raised the threat of an attack against Americans in the United States to a whole other level, FBI Director Christopher Wray told the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Multiple foreign terror groups have called for attacks against Americans in the U.S., including al-Qaeda issuing its most specific threat in five years, the Islamic State urging followers to target Jewish communities in the U.S. and Europe, and Hezbollah threatening to attack U.S. interests in the Middle East. We assess that the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration, the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate several years ago, Ray said. Christine Abazayad, director of the National Counterterrorism Center Office, said hierarchical groups such as al-Qaeda and ISIS, particularly in West and East Africa, are using the war in Israel to spur supporters. They're seeking to capitalize on this moment to galvanize supporters and organize for attacks, Abazayad said. Iranian-aligned militant groups have attacked U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria 24 times since October 7th with rockets and drones, Abiz said. But Iran and its aligned groups, such as Hezbollah, have sought to calibrate their attacks to avoid drawing the U.S. into the war. To combat the increased terror threat since the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said the department has been distributing grants to religious groups to defend themselves. Ray said the FBI elevated hate crimes to a national threat priority and is active in investigates and has active investigations nationwide. Ray said it should be jarring that the Jewish community accounts for 2.4% of the U.S. population and is a target of 60% of religious-based hate crimes. The reality is that the Jewish community is uniquely targeted by pretty much every terrorist organization across the spectrum, Ray said. They need our help. Ivanka's testimony delayed until November 8th. Ivanka Trump's testimony at her father's New York civil fraud trial is being delayed until next week, so there is sufficient time for her to be questioned, a judge said Monday. 
Former President Donald Trump's eldest daughter had been set to take the witness stand on Friday, when the Manhattan trial typically meets for a half-day session. But lawyers in the case said her testimony is likely to take a full day, if not longer. Judge Arthur Hangaron, who last week rejected her bid to avoid testifying, testifying, said she will now appear on November 8th. The judge had floated the idea of making Friday a full-day court session, but Donald Trump's lawyers said they couldn't do that because of other commitments. New York Attorney General Letitia James sued Donald Trump, his company, and top executives, including Trump's sons, Harry and Donald Jr., last year, alleging they conspired to exaggerate his wealth on financial statements that were used to secure loans and make deals. Ivanka Trump, a former executive at her father's Trump organization, was originally listed as a defendant in James' lawsuit, but an appeals court dismissed her from the case in June, saying claims against her were too old. Donald Trump and the other defendants have denied wrongdoing. The case could strip Trump of some of his corporate holdings in marquee properties such as Trump Tower. Donald Trump is expected on the witness stand Monday. Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump are scheduled to testify next Wednesday and Thursday. Ivanka Trump left her job as a Trump Organization Executive Vice President in January 2017, joining her father's administration as an unpaid advisor. She moved to Florida in 2021. Ivanka Trump fought up a subpoena to testify at the civil fraud trial, arguing through a lawyer that her state failed to properly serve her and that she shouldn't be forced to testify because she isn't a party to the case and doesn't live in New York. She could still appeal Hangaran's ruling that requires her to take the witness stand. Ivanka Trump's lawyer, Bennett Moskowitz, told Hangaran that a hearing fried at a hearing Friday that the state lawyers just don't have jurisdiction over her. State lawyers countered that Ivanka Trump was a key participant in some events discussed in the case and remains financially and professionally intertwined with the family business and its leaders. In ordering Ivanka Trump to testify, Angron cited documents showing she continued to have ties to some businesses in New York and still owns Manhattan apartments. Ms. Trump has clearly availed herself of the Trump of the privilege of doing business in New York, he said. During her years at the Trump Organization, Ivanka Trump was involved in negotiating and securing financing for various properties, including a lease and loan for a Washington hotel and loans for a Doral, Florida golf resort in a hotel and condo skyscraper in Chicago, according to court filings. In court papers, state lawyers said the Trump Organization and its staff also have brought insurance for Ivanka Trump and her businesses, managed her household staff and credit card bills, rented her apartment, and paid her legal fees. In 2021, federal disclosures, she reported $2.6 million in income from Trump entities, including revenue from a vehicle known as TTT Consulting, LLC. A company bookkeeper testified that TTT was set up for her and her brothers to reap a share of fees from some licensing agreements. Records say warnings preceded shooting friends and family voiced concerns for months before Maine attack. A friend in his Army Reserve unit worried that he was going to snap and commit a mass shooting. His family was worried that he had a stash of guns and was hearing voices. Those warnings and more were conveyed to sheriff deputies in Robert Card's hometown in Maine, according to documents released to USA Today. 
Monday evening. Yet the records show that law enforcement officers never made direct contact with Card before October 25th when he walked into two businesses in Lewiston and fatally shot 18 people. Reports from the Sagadahawk County Sheriff's Office in Maine show deputies with the department documented concerns about Robert Card as long as ago as May and as recently as mid-September. We believe that our agency acted appropriately and followed procedures for conducting an attempt to locate and do a wellness check, Sheriff Joel Mary wrote in a statement. My office will evaluate our policies and procedures for how we conduct wellness checks with the goal of making any improvements that are in the interest of public safety while balancing the rights of individuals. The documents released in response to a public records request show that the Sheriff's Office was approached by Card's ex-wife and son on May 3rd. They told investigators that Card's mental health was seriously deteriorating. Card's ex-wife, Kara Card, also told a deputy Robert had recently picked up 10 to 15 handguns and rifles from his brother's house. Sagadahawk deputies decided initially to contact others in Card's family, including his brother Ryan. They also reached out to Card's commander at the Army Reserve, himself a law enforcement officer. Officials at the Army unit described having considerable concern for Robert, a deputy wrote. Later, Card's sergeant called the deputy back, saying he had no idea the problem is perhaps as bad as was being described. He thanked me for the notification because they are scheduled for an upcoming training exercise involving weapons and grenades, the deputy wrote. The sheriff's office noted Monday that while its reports described the unit as the main National Guard, it was actually the Army Reserve. When Card's brother and ex-wife went to check on him, he opened the door holding a gun and said people had been casing his house, according to the deputy's report. Ultimately, the family told officers they believed Card would seek a doctor's treatment. Card would later receive mental health treatment, but only after fellow reserve officers who traveled with him to a training event at West Point, New York, insisted. According to sheriff's records, members of Card's unit said Card had been hearing voices calling him a pedophile and other insults. This hearing voices started in the spring and has only gotten worse. Card shoved a fellow soldier, then locked himself in his room. His commander sought medical aid for him the next morning. Card was taken to a base hospital, then transferred to a psychiatric hospital in Katona, New York, for two weeks of treatment. After that, the Army took other precautions. Army spokesperson Lieutenant Colonel Ruth Castro told USA Today on Monday. The Army directed that the service member should not have a weapon or handle ammunition and not participate in live fire activity, Castro said. The Army also declared the service member non-deployable due to concerns over his well-being. Yet by the middle of September, the Army was growing more concerned about Card and asked the Sacagawea County Sheriff's Office to check on him again. This time, according to the report, Card's fellow soldiers said they had been driving home from a night at a casino when Card again began ranting and punched another colleague. Card was having psychotic episodes where he was hearing voices that are insulting him, calling him a pedophile. A commander wrote in a letter to the sheriff's office, adding that Card was making threats to shoot up the Sacco National Guard facility in nearby Sacco, Maine. The letter said Card was upset at his command because the mental health commitment was the reason he can't buy guns anymore and that a fellow soldier, the one Card had punched, is concerned that Card is going to snap and commit a mass shooting. On September 15th, deputies attempted to contact Card at the trailer where he lived in the small town of Bodine. 
Nobody was home, and Card's car wasn't there, so the officer requested a file six, a teletype alert to every law enforcement agency in Maine to be on the lookout for Card. According to a statement from the sheriff's office, that alert said Card was known to be armed and dangerous and urged extreme caution. A deputy returned the next day on September 16th and found Card's white Subaru parked outside his trailer, and he called for backup. Card could be heard moving around inside the trailer, but would not answer the door. Due to being in a very disadvantaged position, we decided to back away. The responding deputy then made a series of calls, including Card's reserve unit and commander and his brother Ryan. Card's commander, who the report notes is also a police officer in New Hampshire, told the deputy that the military was in the process of trying to get Card to retire from the guard with conditions that he get some mental health treatment. Card's commander, Captain Jeremy Reamer, apparently advised the deputies to back down, saying forcing contact might not be advantageous. He thought it best to let Card have time with himself for a bit. The deputy wrote that Card's brother, Ryan, also informed him that he and Card's father were working to ensure that Robert Card had no access to firearms. The deputy asked the family to call back if they believed Card was at risk to himself or others. The lookout alert for Card was canceled the next month on October 18th. The sheriff's office did not say why. One week later, on October 25th, law enforcement officers began searching for Card again, this time as the suspected gunman in the worst mass shooting in Maine history. Well, for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barb DeHeck and Dennis May, and it's been our pleasure to read for you. And now we're going to take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Patty Daniels and Pam Rhodes. We will now continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Pam with our first article. Inserted after the failed rebellion of the Confederacy reflected the conviction that nobody who betrayed the oath to support the Constitution could be trusted to serve in office again, at least not unless a vote by two-thirds of each House of Congress restored the person's eligibility to serve. The authors of Section 3 recognized that another run at office by anyone who had tried to overturn an election in violation of the oath could end the Republic. Of, on that course have so many other countries come to grief, falling into the hands of dictators like Russia's Vladimir Putin or Hungary's Viktor Orban, each won elections and then ruled for years through purely showcase elections without having to answer to the people. Wanting above all to avoid that danger and drawing on the lessons of the world history, our Constitution was carefully framed to prevent the newly created presidency from devolving into a hereditary monarchy or worse. That leaves a paramount question for the courts concerning Trump. What does it mean to engage in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution? It is important to note what can be easily missed. The text of Section 3 says exactly the disqualifying misconduct is a rebellion against the Constitution. It was the Constitution that Trump tried to overflow, overthrow when he lost the 2020 election, as he admitted in December when he called for its termination. Whether by conspiring to create fake electoral slates, soliciting Vice President Mike Pence to illegally reject Congress's election certification, or allegedly inciting his followers to overturn overrun the Capitol on January 6, 2021, during the counting of electoral votes, Trump took the law into his own hands in an attempt to overturn the constitutional structure. That kind of subversion of a fundamental tenet of the Constitution is precisely what the 14th Amendment has to mean by insurrection or rebellion against it, the very definition of disqualifying conduct under Section 3. Nothing is more central to our Constitution's design than the process for electing a president every four years. That process was debated vigorously during the 1787 Constitutional Convention and was embodied in key constitutional provisions, including the Vesting Clause. Quote, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years. End quote. Crucially, the end of that term is determined not by what any candidate wants or believes, but by the election itself. As the Twelfth Amendment puts it, the electors shall meet in their representative states and vote by ballot for president. The person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be the president. The Twentieth Amendment leaves no doubt about what a president's four-year term ends. The terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January. Trump cannot deny any of this, but tries to get around it with arguments that run from the ridiculous to the sublime. A typical example is his claim that he never had 
held an appointed office under the United States, but only the elected presidency. Accepting that claim would turn Section 3 into a bad joke. Trump has argued his supporters won't stand for disqualifying him and will take to the streets. That's a possibility. But for anyone who cherishes the rule of law as a source of our freedom, an even stronger concern is that one can't have a constitutionally based nation and simultaneously ignore the words of the 14th Amendment. Courts exist to enforce the law, not evade it. Ultimately, the burden of decision will land at the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices will face at a crossroad. To allow Trump to appear on the 2024 presidential ballot, they would need to explain why any ruling that keeps the former president in the running doesn't betray the Constitution. Or they could hold Trump ineligible and trust that the American people believe enough in the Constitution to live with the results. Only the latter choice is faithful to our heritage and the ideals of a constitutional republic, if we can keep it. And this article was written by Lawrence H. Tribe. He is a university professor of constitutional law emeritus at Harvard University. He has consulted in his individual capacity with counsel to Colorado and Minnesota plaintiffs. Dennis Afrigat, a former federal prosecutor, is counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. Thank you, Pam. Jakari, 12, was a neighbor I should have known. Written for us by James E. Cossey of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. That's the USA Today Network. I did not know Jakari Robinson, the 12-year-old boy whose malnourished and abused body was found badly decomposed in a Milwaukee home. But I should have. He lived just half a block away in a gray and white house that I passed hundreds of times alone this year. An autopsy found Jakari weighed just 54 pounds, was severely malnourished, and had a broken upper arm and ribs. His father, Romeo Anche Moy, 45, who had fled after the body was discovered, has been charged in his son's death. I know most of the kids on my block either by name or the activities they are involved in. I've lived in this neighborhood for 46 years, and while the area has seen its syrups changes, I can't ever remember a case like this. I know that my neighbor's kid, two houses down, can ride his bike only to our place and back, or his grandmother will yell at him. I've cut her grass a few times. Our newest neighbor has a 14-year-old who hops on his skateboard when he gets home from school and does crazy tricks off the speed hump until the streetlights come on. A little girl on our block tries to play games with the bigger kids, but she usually falls and cries when they play hide-and-seek. She also has a piercing scream when she is excited. We are all so used to her cries that we know we can safely ignore them. The kids are respectful. For the most part, we look out for one another. A case like Jakari's invariably raises questions. The only answer I've found is that we all need to do a better job of looking out for our neighbors, starting with myself. We're all consumed with our lives and don't always notice what happens around us. More effect must, more effort must be made to pay attention and report things that seem out of place. 
Jakari lived across the street from my childhood friend Darnell Shorter, who has resided there for nearly five decades. Shorter called me the evening authorities discovered the boy and asked if I had heard all the commotion. When I looked out my window, it was a sea of red and blue flashing lights. They found a little boy dead in the house across the street from me. They said his body had been in the house for a while. His body was decomposed, Shorter said. Shorter, 54, said the dad, Romo and Moy, came across as odd and standoffish and had no contact with neighbors. He would see Jakari's older sisters outside practicing dance moves, but he rarely saw the boy. The times I did see him, I thought he was their sister because he would have, he would have on a hoodie and he was so skinny, Shorter said. Police said the home was in disarray. They found mold in the bathroom, kitchen sink, and refrigerator. The house had numerous bottles of urine, and the toilet was not working. Jakari's sisters said they stayed with their mother for two weeks, and when they left their father's home, it was the last time they saw their brother. They said the boy was on punishment and could not leave the house. The three minor siblings living in the house were homeschooled. Moy is facing three charges of chronic neglect of a child and one charge of failure to report death, all felonies. Additional charges are pending depending on future autopsy reports. Jakari's death leaves his family and neighbors with questions. How long was the 12-year-old living in these hard conditions? Why didn't his siblings living in the house say anything? How many? How did so many people miss this? Why hadn't Jakari seen his mother in three years? Since his death, I have made more of an effort to know my neighbors. When I saw my next-door neighbor last week, I asked him how he was doing. We discussed how something like this could happen in our neighborhood. He told me he had suffered a mild stroke over the weekend and was hospitalized. My wife and I were shocked because we chatted with our neighbor frequently and would say hello to him when we saw him working in his yard or working on one of his cars. We agreed that this was an excellent time to keep in better contact because unless you talk to people and get to know them, there is no way to know what they are going through. Jakari's family said he loved TikTok videos, professional wrestling, basketball, and football. Maybe if I had met him, I could have taught him how to throw a tight spiral, and he would have told me what he was experiencing. Young people need advocates and more people to talk to, but neighbors must not be afraid to speak up when things don't seem right. Now that Jakari is dead, many people talk about how strange his father acted. Imagine if someone had called the authorities for a wellness check. Little Jakari may still be with us. Unfortunately, there are other Jakaris in our city who need our help. If you see something or if something looks out of order, speak up. It could save a life. The life you saved just might be closer to you than you think. James E. Causey is an Ideas Lab reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, where this column first published. Uh, reach him at... Jay Causey at jrn.com and you can follow him on X 
formerly Twitter, at jcauzy. Okay, we're going to turn to sports now. And uh, this is the schedule for sports on TV. Wednesday, November 1st, all times are in Eastern time zone. College field hockey, 1 p.m. Atlantic Coast, Tur Coast Tournament, TB to be announced versus North Carolina, semifinal, Charlottesville, Virginia. At 3.30 p.m., uh, the Atlantic Coast Tournament to be announced, semifinal, Charlottesville, Virginia. College football, 7 p.m., ESPN 2, Ball State at Bowling Green at 7.30 p.m., ESPNU, Kent State at Akron, College Golf, 3 p.m., Golf, the East Lake Cup, Final Round, East Lake Golf Club, Atlanta, College Soccer, Men's, uh, at 6 p.m., the Atlantic Coast Tournament, uh, NC State at Syracuse first round, and this, I believe, is on ACCN. I'm not familiar with that station. 8 p.m. on ACCN, the Atlantic Coast Tournament, Louisville at Pittsburgh first round. College Volleyball Women's, 7 p.m., BTN, Purdue at Wisconsin, 8 p.m., SC, excuse me, SECN, LSU at Mississippi, 9 p.m., BTN, Northwestern at Illinois, Golf, 11 p.m., Golf, LPGA Tour, the TOTO Japan Glass Classic, first round, the Hayo Club Minori course in Omitama, oh, I'm sorry, o Omitama, Japan, MLL, LL, excuse me, Excuse me, MLB Baseball, 8 p.m. on Fox, the World Series, Texas at Arizona, Game 5. NBA Basketball, 7.40 p.m., ESPN, New Orleans at Oklahoma City. 10.05 p.m., ESPN, L.A. Clippers at L.A. Lakers. NHL Hockey, 7 p.m., TNT, Buffalo at Philadelphia. 9.30 p.m., TNT, St. Louis at Colorado. Men's Soccer, 7.30 p.m., FS1, MLS Playoff, Atlanta United at Columbus, Game 1. FS2, MLS Playoff, Atlanta United at Columbus, Game 1. That's the Spanish telecast. Tennis, 6 a.m., Tennis, WTA Finals Round Robin, Paris, ATP Early Rounds. 2 p.m., Tennis, WTA rounds round robin Paris ATP early rounds and 10 p.m. tennis WTA finals round robin Paris ATP early rounds and get to the first article in the sports section this is uh, a ch an article by Chad Leistakow Iowa's Kirk Ferentz staggered by son's ousting every year Kirk Ferentz splits his Iowa football team's regular season into two mini-seasons, one before the scheduled idle weekend, one after. The first eight-game block featured a rash of major injuries to key players, terrible offense, and, almost miraculously, a 6-2 and two record. The second four-game block technically begins with Saturday's 2.30 p.m. game versus Northwestern at Chicago's famed Wrigley Field. 
but this mid-season is already off to an unprecedented start with Monday's bombshell news that interim athletics director Beth Getz informed offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz, Kirk's son, that he will not be retained beyond this season. That prompted Kirk Ferentz to take his own precedented action to remove regularly scheduled player media interviews on Tuesday. According to the former longtime Cedar Rapids Gazette beat reporter Mark Morehouse, who was covering the Hawkeyes back in 1999, this has never bef never happened in the 25-year Ferentz era. Sure, the move was a way for Ferentz to retain some public control of his football team, considering the ousting of his son was pop publicly out of his control, but it was also emblematic of his determination to beat a feisty Northwestern squad that has given his program problems in the past and is coming off an impressive win against Maryland. Iowa, in a four-way tie at 3-2 atop the Big Ten West, still has a realistic shot at appearing in the December 2nd Big Ten Championship game if it can keep its players focused and sharp for four games in 21 days. Ferris understands that this game week has begun with a major distraction. He understands the importance of media interactions, but wants to shield his players, who normally talk to the media at 11 a.m. on Tuesday. Well before Ferrance's 1.45 p.m. press conference and assistant coaches from additional distractions this week. I thought it was best to protect our players a little bit, Ferrance said. In light of what's been going on now, I think it's best to stay tight and keep our focus on the game at hand. While it limits coverage from a player's point of view, it makes sense. And per Ferrance, this is the on this only oh, this is only a one-week thing. About five to six players will talk after Saturday's game, and another batch of six to eight will speak next Tuesday ahead of the November 11 Rutgers matchup. With that, Kirk Ferentz was the sole voice of the program this week. Here are the top takeaways from his 30-minute news conference Tuesday. From his very first comments on the matter, Ferentz was visibly bothered by Monday's news. After an opening statement about injuries, just about everyone not out for the season, Kem, except cornerback T.J. Hall, should be good to go. And Saturday's opponent, the Wildcats, are 4-4. Four and four. Ferentz dug into the stuff everyone was waiting for. Here is how he started after a deep breath. Basically, I'll say this. Okay, for 25 years I've tried to operate with a singular focus of doing what I feel is best for the program, Ferentz said. And that's mainly the players and everyone that works inside this building. That's my first obligation. My philosophy, my practice, has been to be, has been pretty consistent. Typically, we go through the season and then run an evaluation of our program top to bottom afterward. Yesterday's announcement was certainly a departure from that practice. Those remarks give a sense of the main message Ferentz wanted to get across, which was basically, this isn't how I do things. But the message from the top in UI President Barbara Wilson was and delivered by Getz, Brian Ferentz's direct supervisor, was that a program evaluation has not been made in the past, and this announcement now serves the university best moving forward. We'll have to stop on this article and move on to other things.
Thank you, Pam. I wanted to hear the end of that, too. But we are going to move on to Dear Abby. And you're going to read that, too, Pam. Family is judgmental of elderly men. Dear Abby, I live in a rural community in southern Indiana. It's an everyone-goes-to-church-on-Sunday-and-everyone-knows-everyone kind of place. I was employed at the local health care center here for almost four years before quitting to become a full-time caregiver and homemaker. During my time at the health care facility, I became acquainted with an elderly gentleman. We became good friends and remain good friends to this day. I visit with him several times a week, when time allows, and we talk on the telephone. The problem is, his family doesn't like that I am a homosexual male and that I have such a close relationship with him. He does not want me to stop visiting, nor do I want to. What can I do to make everyone relax so he and I can still remain good friends without someone disapproving? Signed, unappreciated friend. Dear friend, I wish I understood exactly what the family's objection is to your friendship with this person. Are they afraid you are after his money? Or are they incapable of understanding that homosexuals can and do have platonic friendships with straight folks? If you and that gentleman want to remain friends, you may have to grow a thicker skin. You cannot please everyone, and whether his family approves is beside the point. I hope you will keep doing what you have been doing, because it is beneficial for that man to have a friend he can count on. Dear Abby, my sister, who is quite a bit older than me, was married to a man for more than 20 years. He was part of the family from the time I was three. When I was a teenager, he made a move on me, which was disgusting, because I trusted him. My family swept it under the rug and downplays it to this day. If that wasn't enough, I twice caught him cheating on my sister. They eventually divorced. As an adult, I want nothing to do with him. However, my sister and mother insist on him being involved in our important gatherings. I feel they completely disregard my feelings, and I have since removed myself from those gatherings. I feel cheated, but they say it's necessary for him to be around their shared children, and they keep trying to make me feel like I am being unreasonable. Am I? Signed, Little Sister in Tennessee. Dear Sister, you are not unreasonable. You are pragmatic. You come from a family that prefers to, prefers to ignore misbehavior rather than confront and deal with it. I don't know if you have had psychotherapy, but from what you have written, you might have, and with some very competent therapists. Enforcing boundaries is not unreasonable. While your sister and mother may prefer hiding their heads in the sand for the sake of the children, who by now should be pretty close to adulthood, you have every right to keep your distance. From my perspective, what you are doing is healthy. And you can contact Dear Abby at www.dearabby.com. Thank you, Pam. At the request of our listeners, Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., you'll hear the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal. At 5, you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of the Des Moines Register. 
At 8, you will hear this week's Iowa Salute. 9 p.m., it's Consumer News. 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11. And that uh, is brings us to the end of the register for today.